if you were making plans to travel or you were planning an event, a wedding, a birthday party, whatever it might be, if you were planning in that way, I'm guessing that you would want to utilize some key principles in order to be successful. I think you'll recognize these if you've had to do any kind of planning like that. For example, successful planning should involve good research, right? Good research. Uh, you got to know your options when you're planning something. You, you have to understand what's involved in getting from point A to point B, especially if you're unfamiliar with it. You've got to do your research. Successful planning would also involve good communication. Good communication You will be planning to fail if you aren't talking with the other people who will be involved, right? If you don't let people know when the wedding is, (laughs) if you don't let people know when to get to the airport, if you aren't talking about with them about what to bring, guess what? You're in trouble. It's not going to work out, is it? Successful planning also involves good budgeting. It would be extremely sad if you had every single detail arranged and every single person invited or alerted but couldn't go or do or host because you didn't have any money (laughs) to make that happen, that wouldn't be good. Think about it. What comes to mind for you when you think about key planning principles? Well, this is not a seminar on planning, is it? You know, I'm not, I'm not uh, here to help you kind of get your life together with new ta- time management t- tips and techniques. This is uh, the gathering of the people of God. And we want to hear from God this morning. But let's think about that. Let's get, think more about this topic of planning by turning to a passage that is from our Bible reading plan from this past week. So look with me, if you would, at James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. A little background on the book of James, the letter of James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. That means he was the full-blooded child of Mary and Joseph. Remember, Jesus only had Mary as his mother and God as his father, right? That's how he was born, uh, of a virgin. But he had uh, other brothers and sisters that Joseph and Mary would have. and the, The Bible talks about them in many, many, many places, these other brothers and sisters. But James was one of those. And amazingly, God elevated him to a, a position of, of importance and leadership within the early Christian movement, the, the, the first believers in that church in Jerusalem. You can read about James in the book of Acts and how God used him in that way. Well, he's writing, just like his location would, would tell us, he's writing here in this letter to Jews who have confessed Jesus to be the Messiah. They've accepted that Jesus is the promised one, the one promised by God, the Messiah. And so he's writing to them. So you'll, you'll detect a Jewish flavor to this letter if you did as you were reading this past week. So this is what he writes to these fellow Jewish Christians. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and, and we will spend a year there and We're going to trade and make profits. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist 
that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, if it wasn't clear from that initial reading or your familiarity with this passage, the issue that James is tackling here with his readers, the issue that God is speaking to us about this morning through this word, remember what I said, it's not an accident that you're here. We call it a divine appointment, right? God had you here. He has you here for a reason. So what God is addressing here, what James is tackling here with his readers, is the issue of sinful boasting. Sinful boasting. While the English word boasting usually carries negative connotations. Most cases you hear something about boasting, you think, eh, somebody's not doing the right thing. That's, that's kind of ugly. I don't want to hear you boasting. Well, in Greek... When James uses this word here, it can be used in both positive and negative contexts. For example, in the very first chapter of this letter, James chapter 1, the very same author writes, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. That means, let that, let that brother or sister rejoice, proclaim, boast, talk about, even excessively talk about the fact that God has exalted the humble. That he's lifted up those who are poor, lifted up those who the world would cast to the side. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. This kind of boasting is ultimately an example of what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 31, where he talks about boasting in the Lord, which itself is drawn from the Old Testament. If you're going to boast in anything, boast in the Lord, boast in God. But to understand what James in fact, what God through James is teaching us here about sinful boasting, the first thing that we need to consider as we look at this passage and study it together is this. We need to consider what it sounds like. We need to consider what boastful, sinful boasting sounds like. Most times we think about, we hear sinful boasting and we think of something like this. Did I mention to you the seven reasons why I am so awesome and you're not, right? That's what kind of like sinful boasting, like, oh, that's what it sounds like right there. Uh, but look again at the example of sinful boasting that James offers in verse 13. Come now, you who say, and here's this example of sinful boasting, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make profits. Whoa, wow, like were you like really repulsed by that statement? It was really ugly, wasn't it, to hear that? Like, oh, jeez, who's talking like this? Of course, I'm being sarcastic because when you read that, at first, it sounds like nothing more than an example of good planning, right? Good planning, it's the kind of healthy ambition, the kind of positive thinking the kind of entrepreneurial spirit, go get them, can do attitude that can really make all the difference in any business venture. This is the kind of person you want to be in business with. 
got a plan, got a vision, going to go out there and implement it. So this sounds strange to us. In fact, maybe this is the, the kind of planning Solomon wrote about in Proverbs 21.5 where he said, the plans, the plans of the diligent surely lead to abundance or lead surely to abundance. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But notice that the plan announced here is not simply a plan to go to a particular town and do business. It's more of a statement about what will happen. Specifically, that they will spend the year, they will have business opportunities, and they will make a profit. You see that? Verse 13. This is what's going to happen, the person proclaims. Now, in a letter that deals quite a bit, and you guys read through James, so you know... This letter deals quite a bit with the topics of wealth and the wealthy. In this kind of letter, in that kind of context, in a book that describes to us in chapter 1, verse 11, how the rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. The talk of going to make a profit should get our attention. It helps us understand what's really being said here. Why it's being said. But if this really is an example of sinful boasting, what we read in verse 13, again, that sounds to us like good planning and and good uh, entrepreneurial ambition. If this really is an example of sinful boasting, look at what James tells us about, number two, where it comes from. Where does this sinful boasting come from? Well, we read about the source, the driving force behind such boasting in verse 16. Look back at 16. What does he say? As it is, you boast in your arrogance. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil, says James. So clearly this is sinful boasting James plainly labels it evil, doesn't he? Right? There's no like, there's nothing ambiguous about this. This is evil boasting. But his diagnosis here points to a root cause, doesn't it? What is the root cause? An arrogant heart. An arrogant heart. Now, arrogance is an interesting word, isn't it? When we think about that word arrogance, when we hear that, we don't necessarily think of someone who is describing their business plans like we read here. For example, if someone were to say to you, you know, tomorrow we're flying out to Silicon Valley and we're going to meet with Google and we're going to meet with Apple and we're going to meet with many others. And let me tell you, we're going to make a killing. We would hear that and we would admire, I think, their confidence like, oh, wow. We might even want to learn more about their experience, their background, their business plan. Maybe we would want to know if we could be an investor as well in whatever this new tech startup is that they've got going on. Sure, the person speaking the words of verse 13 might come off as arrogant, the way they, the way they talk 
the way they, uh, sorry, the way they walk, the way they swagger into the room, the way they interact with people or hold themselves back, aloof, the way they talk about themselves. Those might be the things we hear and think, this guy's kind of pompous, you know, this person's kind of arrogant. But notice that James begins with just their words. He's just talking about the words. Just verse 13. He's simply describing what they're saying. Not the way they walked into the room or interacted with others. For James, the words, that statement, reveals something about the heart. As James wrote in the previous chapter, he said this. Take a look. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This allows us to know that James knew more about his audience. He understood that there was a larger picture there. There was more evidence of what was happening inside of each of them, or at least a handful of these people who were influential in the church. He, he understood that there were many things that were troubling about this church. That feeds into his statement in verse 13 about going and doing business and making profits. Do not boast and be false to the truth. Think about that. False to the truth. Well, what truth is that exactly? Well, that leads us to look at another aspect of sinful boasting. Specifically, number three, there it is. Why it's so foolish. Why is sinful boasting so foolish? James exposes this foolishness in our passage this morning by pointing out two truths about human beings in verse 14. Two truths about us, about you, about me. Look at verse 14 again. Such people were talking about, right, going to such and such a town, doing business, making a profit. And yet, verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? <laughs> You're a mist, right? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You can imagine steam coming up off the stove. Maybe like me, you grew up with a, a grandfather who smoked and the smoke trailing up. And then what happens? It just disappears. It's gone. This is what James is telling us. Okay, so this is where the arrogance, the pride that James speaks about in this passage, this is where the diagnosis is becoming clearer for us. If the words of verse 13 really didn't do it for us, like, oh, this is kind of like, sounds like good business planning. This is where we start to dig down and dig, dig underneath the surface, understanding the heart behind those words of verse 13. The first issue that James confronts in verse 14 is the fact that human beings do not know what tomorrow will bring. Sure, you can add an event to your calendar, right? Swipe up, hit your date tomorrow and say, I'm going to do this tomorrow. I'm going I'm to the doctor tomorrow. I'm going to buy tickets for a movie tomorrow. You can find out what the weather is going to be like because someone's done that work and said it's going to be clear and it's going to have this and it's going to, you know, it's going to be a, a, a beautiful day at 71 degrees. You could go, you could make a plan to go to work. I need to be up early to make my lunch to, before I go to work. You could make a plan to go uh, and visit with somebody, to go to school or wherever you're going. You could make those plans. You could set that trajectory. 
But please, please don't confuse those things with actually knowing what tomorrow will bring. Because you do not. I do not. And when we act like we do, it is nothing but arrogance. Arrogance. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. That doesn't sound like arrogance to me. It doesn't sound like arrogance to you and to me at first because we're sinners. Because we're losing sight of something very important, central, crucial about this universe. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. This points to the second correction in verse 14 that James is offering here. He offers to the arrogant boaster. He says, what is your life? Here's what your life is. It's like a mist that appears for a little bit, right? A little time and then it vanishes. Will the sun come up tomorrow? I would bet money that it will. I think you would bet money too that it will come up tomorrow. But I can't be sure that I'll be here to see it. You can't be sure that you will be here to see it. You can't be sure that you won't be seeing the sun come up tomorrow from a hospital bed. And I could come up with a thousand other variations on, of that story. Things that you do not know, that you could not know. You or I may not be here because our life is simply vapor, a mist, a smoke that's here for a moment and then gone. Not only is human knowledge limited, but human life is fragile. That's what James is reminding us of. That's what God's Word reminds us of over and over again, whether from the lips of James or the lips of Jesus or the lips of the Old Testament prophets. It is a reminder that our knowledge is limited and our life is fragile, so stop Acting like that's not true. All of this. Acting as if you have all knowledge. Or all the time in the world. Is symptomatic. Says the word of God. Of only one thing. Pride. Pride. And that brings us to the most important idea in this passage. Here it is. The most important thing. Notice what James reveals in this passage about number four. I think we already saw it up there. We'll go back, Kedrick. We'll go back. There it is. Number four. What to do differently on the subject of sinful boasting. What to do differently. What ought we to do? What ought we to do when it comes to our ambitions and plans? Well, James writes in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Though none of us possesses all the knowledge that can be known, nor all the time in the world, there is one who does. Amen? There is one who who does possess those things. He is our creator. He is the almighty. He is the king over all things. Only God is eternal. Only God is omniscient or all-knowing. If the universe in which we live is truly a God-centered universe, which it is, human sin does not change the fact 
that this is a God-centered universe. God is not one inch off his throne. More than he, because of human sin. He's firmly planted on his throne. He firmly is in charge. He has a purpose. He has a plan. He is at work. If this universe in which we truly live is a God-centered universe, then we ought to live God-centered lives, right? It's not, it's not, it's like a no-brainer, right, folks? <laughs> if this universe is a God-centered universe, which it is, we ought to live God-centered lives. Why is that? Yes, because it's the right thing to do, but also because it's the good thing to do. That's why you ought to lead a God-centered life. Because it's the good thing to do. What do I mean there? Because it leads to blessing. It leads to flourishing. It leads to life. And we're all striving. We're all clawing. We're all yearning for life. It's what animates you. It's what drives you to do what you do. You're hungry for life. A fullness of life. That means joy. That means peace. It means all of those things that God talks about when he gives his children eternal life. Though Solomon wrote to us, as we saw earlier, earlier about planning and prosperity, wisdom principles of planning, it's good to plan. That's not a bad thing. Even though he wrote to us about that earlier in Proverbs, he also wrote this even more. Take a look. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Proverbs 16, verse 3. The heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh establishes his steps. Proverbs 16, 9. Now, these are true because ultimately it all comes down to this. Here it is. Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man or woman, but it is the purpose of Yahweh that will stand. Now, just let that soak in for a second. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, and that's true even right now. In your mind. The gears are turning. I see it. There are plans being made. Even if it's not there on the, on the surface. It's back in the background noise of your head. Plans are being made. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. But it is in the end. The purpose of the Lord. The purpose of Yahweh. The God of Israel. That will stand. That's what matters in the end. The book of James, this letter that we're studying this morning that you read through, tells us that James understood that principle. We see it here. We recognize it. He understood that principle, but he also understood the kind of greed and pride that was infecting many in this church. This kind of greed and this kind of pride not only affected the rich and what they expected of others in the church and the way they treated others, but this kind of greed and this kind of pride also influenced the poor. 
It also influenced just the, the everyday middle class, average Joe in this church. Even to the point, chapter 1 tells us, that they were giving preferential treatment to the rich in their church. How is this guy dressed? Ooh, look at that Rolex. You get to sit right up here in the VIP seating. Who's this guy? What is he wearing? Flip-flops? Mm, you can sit in back. This is how they were treating one another in this church. You see, it was symptomatic of the greed and pride that had infected their hearts. All of them, or at least a, a huge portion of them, no matter what their checking account balance was, they were gripped by greed and pride. So James understood this, and he understood it was this kind of heart that was driving the sinful boasting that he indicts in chapter 4, verse 13. It was this kind of heart. In fact, he addresses that very heart earlier in this same chapter. We heard it before, read to us. Look at this, look at this verse. We won't have it up on the screen, sorry. Look back to the beginning of chapter 4 in your Bibles, on your Bible app, verse 3. You ask God, we can supply that. You ask God and you do not receive from him. Why is that? Because you ask wrongly, says James. How wrongly? You ask to spend it on your passions. And here James does not mince any words. Verse 4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Don't you know that when you cozy up to the world, that you are showing yourself to be opposed to the things of God, who He is? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Listen to that instruction, that command, that imperative. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, all the temptations that he brings. Resist him and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves, verse 10, before the Lord. And he will exalt you. We have to understand this is the lead up to our passage this morning. This is what James has been telling his readers to prepare them for the word that God has for them. This last point there in verse 10 about humility and exaltation is the key to those who are seeking true profit. Like the businessman who boasts, I'm going to go to this city, I'm going to do trade there, and we're going to make profits. We can be the same way, seeking profit, whether it be financial or relational or emotional profit. When we make God-devoid plans, says James, when you make God-devoid plans to get or to gain, you are foolishly missing a beautiful and powerful truth, one that James shared with his readers in the very first chapter of this letter. Take a look. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. Chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter one, verse 16. 
and 17. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? From above. From above. And it's coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Please hear this. The antidote or correction to sinful boasting is not only a view of God, but a right view of God. But not only a right view of God, a right view of life and human flourishing, a right view of why we have what you have, why you possess what you possess today. If there's anything good in your life, Guess where it came from? It came from above. Anything that you have and anything that you could want that you truly need, guess where it's going to come from? Above. From the Father of lights. So a right view of God, a right view of life and human flourishing, a right view of why we have what we have, one that acknowledges our desperate need for Him because all comes from above. But again, we need not only a right view of these things, we need a right faith as well. That trust that God, His way is always best. That's the kind of faith that regularly regularly declares because it is natural to that kind of heart and that kind of perspective. It makes sense of that kind of perspective. It's the kind of heart that regularly declares, if the Lord wills, I will live. If God wills, I will do this or I will do that. You see what he's saying? What he's pointing us back to here? Brothers and sisters, friends, please hear this. Think about, or or please do this, think about the plans that you are making even now. As the pastor drones on, you're thinking about lunch, right? (laughs) Like, oh, I'm really hungry. Where will I go? Where will I go? What do I feel like today to, to eat? Uh, you're making plans even now. After church, I will go here or there. I will do this or that. Uh, Tomorrow, I will go here or there. I will do this or that. Uh, Or think of those bigger and broader plans that you have. Uh, I'm going to get my degree. Uh, I'm going to change jobs. I'm going to retire at this age. Uh, I'm going to meet this kind of man and have this many kids and so on and so forth. Is there something inherently wrong with saying things like this? Absolutely not. No. If that were the case, then there would be many guilty people in Scripture who talked like this, including King David and a number of other people talked about what they were going to do the next day. Plans that they had made. No. There is nothing inherently wrong with planning. There is nothing inherently wrong with setting goals. The issue that God has brought to our attention this morning through James is the issue of sinful boasting. 
And as James has made clear, the source of such boasting is an arrogant heart. And this arrogant heart is far worse than the arrogance we usually identify, we usually look for, that arrogance that is ego-inflating. This arrogance is God-neglecting. Don't you see? The most arrogant person in the world is the one who neglects God. It's the God-neglecting man or woman. They are the most arrogant person in the room. This arrogance forgets God. It dismisses God. It confines God to certain areas. Sure, people might acknowledge God in religious settings or in what they deem spiritual situations. God, 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 God. (laughs) God, 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 God. But guess what? Once they leave that setting, me, 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 me. Self, 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 self. I, 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 I. And God is way left in the dust, way back there, somewhere on the side of the road. James has indicated in the everyday matters of life, like travel and business and finances, he has said, he has indicated in those ways that God is neglected by his the speakers that he's talking about here why is it that we neglect him in these ways because down deep in many cases many times for many reasons we simply don't believe that we need him simply don't believe we need him not when we have such and such in our life Not when the world provides this solution or this answer. We don't need God. That's at least what the world wants us to believe. So is there something inherently wrong with saying tomorrow I will go here or there. I will do this or that. No. But in a particular instance. Such a statement. Such planning. Could be very wrong. In fact evil. Please don't let go of that word. Don't don't pass it over. Evil. In any particular instance, that statement, such planning could be evil. Why? Because it comes from the wrong kind of heart, from this God-neglecting heart. You see, the question is not ultimately, do you talk like this in verse 13? The real question is, do you think like this? Do you think like this? Is your outlook on life God-depending or God-neglecting? Be honest with yourself. God-depending or God-neglecting? The pastor commentator Matthew Henry wrote several hundred years ago about this encouragement, the encouragement in this passage here. Look at what he wrote. Therefore, both our counsels for action and our conduct in action should be entirely referred to God. That is, God's our reference point in all things our North Star, in all things. All we design and all we do should be with a submissive dependence on God. Are there key planning principles that you and I should utilize in our everyday? Sure. Good research, good communication, 
Good budgeting, those are just a few of those principles. But the most important planning principle, the most crucial, the most critical, the most foundational is this, a good God. That's it, a good God. If you don't understand that when it comes to your plans, none of your plans will amount to anything except in the end your own ruin. It is that serious. It is that serious. This is the point I hope that you take to heart. The key is not to have a mouth that regularly proclaims, if the Lord wills or Lord willing, the key is to have a heart that regularly prays, your will be done. Matthew 6.10. That's the point that James is making here. Right? I, I hope that you don't walk away and think, oh, when I come to church next week, I need to make sure that, that I watch what I'm saying, right? How you doing? Oh, good. We're going to go tomorrow. Oh, I meant uh, the Lord wills I'm going to go tomorrow to the store. Uh, forgive my uh, foible there and saying, saying it the wrong way. No. The point of this is that heart that says your will be done. That's what James is praying for for his listeners. A heart shaped by that kind of dependence a heart shaped by this kind of desire for God's will, when that is the case, others will invariably hear traces of that heart in what we say, right? It'll come out if your heart is shaped in that way. Whether you're saying, Lord willing, we're going to do this, or I've prayed about it, or whatever, you know, whatever it means, whatever, uh, however it sounds, it will come out. Brothers and sisters, friends, when you consider your words, when you consider your plans, when you consider your every day, looking back over the last week or two or the last month, when you consider those words, those plans, that every day, is there a God-depending or a God-neglecting heart behind it all? I can't make that assessment for you. Only you can make that assessment. But please be honest with yourself and say, yes, my heart it was God-depending over this last week. And I see evidence of that. Or to say, you know what? I thought about God here and then and the rest of the time. I really didn't even think about God. I was so busy with all my things that I'm doing all my life. All the things that I'm involved with. All the things I'm planning and wanting to do. If that's the case, there's a problem. And God is lovingly helping you to see that problem this morning. He wants to give you a course correction on your life so that you can understand what true life means, what true flourishing and blessing means. Don't miss the seriousness of that final reminder in verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Why is he saying that here at the end? I think that it's, it applies to pretty much everything he's set up to this point in the letter. But I also think he wants to make sure that his listeners understand that they have been given knowledge of God's will. They have been given knowledge of what God desires for their life. And if they do nothing with it, in the end, they will not stand before God and say, well, I heard that, but I really didn't do anything either way with it. So that's cool, right, God? No, God will say, no, 
You knew the right thing to do, but you did not do it. This is just another way of talking about what we heard in the first chapter. This is the question is, will we be doers of the word and not hearers only? He's making the same point here. Are you going to hear and do something with what you've been given in light of the word this morning? Finally, and this is where we always need to land each and every day, each and every time we are in the word of God, each and every time we gather on Sunday morning, this is where we always need to land. Look or listen again to chapter 1, verse 18 to the gospel reminder that God has given us. What does gospel mean? It means good news. That's all it means. Good news. Capital G, capital N. The good news about Jesus. Of His own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. You do need to be deeply convicted this morning as I need to be deeply convicted this morning about this bad news that our hearts are stubbornly arrogant and evil at times because we try to live this me-centered life in a God-centered universe. We need to hear that bad news because it prepares us rightly for the glorious good news that God has for us. That through the word of truth, there is a new creation possible. A new creation. We should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. What does that mean? That means that God has a plan to transform this entire universe. Hallelujah. The world needs it. We need it desperately. So much suffering, so much hurt, so much confusion. We desperately need, the whole universe needs to be remade and transformed and purged, doesn't it? But God is going to begin that work. He's already begun that work in human lives, human hearts. He's been doing a great and glorious work over the last 2,000 years. And I pray this morning that you are a part of that work. That the new world to come is evident in your life first. Jesus called that the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God evident in your life. This is what it looks like. We are like ambassadors, right? We're coming from this embassy. The church is an embassy representing the king of kings. Representing the age to come in the age that is now. The present. How can we know this? Of his own will he brought us forth. It's the grace of God. Working to take dead men and women like us, spiritually dead, and making us alive. Though all of us could, all of us can slip into this God neglecting mindset that we talk about, the new creation heart that God has given you or wants to give you this morning, that new creation heart that James is talking about here through Jesus is a God depending heart. That's good news, isn't it? I'm going to struggle with neglecting God. So are you. But the gift that God wants to give you through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is a new heart that's a God-depending heart. And just as Paul said, my outer man is, is, is fading away. It's suffering. It's, being, it's wasting away. But my inner man is being renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You see, that new heart of God-depending heart is going to be growing in you. 
And that's the great assurance and comfort that we have is that God has begun a work in us and he will finish the work that he began in us. He will complete the work that he began in us. Not one of us could ever yield to the good and gracious will of God unless Jesus had first done that very thing on our behalf. Do you understand that this morning? You were born into this world as a God-hater. I was born into this world as a God-hater. It was about my will being done, not God's. That's how I lived my life. That's how I struggle. I, it's even I still struggle with it today. And I could never of my own ability, of my own power, yield to the will of God like James is describing here. If the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. I could never do that unless Jesus had first yielded to the will of God fully on my behalf. My Father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Matthew 26, 42. Your will be done. It's through the cross of Christ that we can know new life transformation we so desperately need so let us rejoice this morning and every day in god's perfect provision god as our perfect provider and as we do that then let us make our plans amen amen Amen. let's pray together